this uh, discourse called the Upakilesa Sutta is concerned with many different things. It is not just about one happening. And Upakilesa means imperfection. Kilesas are our um, hindrances. So uh, Upakilesas is actually a sort of a um, another support for that so it's actually um, more than just hindrances they're really imperfections and it is interesting because of the fact that here the Buddha speaks about his meditative state before he was enlightened and all the difficulties he had so in that respect it is um, interesting when we should still have any difficulties in meditation. But it also concerns other things. Now here it starts again out, thus have I heard, or thus I heard, which is Ananda reciting. And he says where he, where it was happening, where he heard it, in order to make it known which occasion it was. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Kosambi in Gosita's Park. Now, the monks of Kosambi are well known uh, for in the uh, in the um, uh, Pali Canon for their misbehavior, for their bad behavior. They are famous for that. So it first uh, concerns that that they were misbehaving, and in Gosita's Park which was that uh, a place belonging to this person where the Buddha was welcome to stay. Now on that occasion Kosambi bhikkhus had taken to quarreling and brawling and were deep in disputes, stabbing each with verbal daggers. Now, I mean that's nothing new, people do that all the time, huh? And then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him he stood at one side and he said Venerable Sir, because here at Kosambi have taken to crawling and brawling and are deep in dispute, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One went to those because out of compassion. So somebody comes and tells the Buddha that he should do something about this matter. So the Blessed One consented in silence. And then the Blessed One went to those because and said to them, Enough because no quarreling, no brawling, no wrangling, no disputing. And when this was said, a certain bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One, Lord of the Dhamma, wait. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One abide inactive and devoted to pleasant abiding here and now. It is we who shall be known for this quarreling, brawling, wrangling and disputing. Devoted to pleasant abiding is the terminology for having the meditative absorption and sitting in that pleasant abiding. So this bhikkhu thinks that the uh, Buddha should not even be concerned with these ra uh, wrangling and brawling bhikkhus, but that they should sort it out by themselves and that he should enjoy his meditation. And the same Bhikkhu said the, said the same thing the second time, and he said it for the third time. 
Um, but then, sorry, the, uh, the Buddha said it for a second time and for a third time. Not to be goofy, the Buddha said this for a second and a third time. And then the same because said to for a third time to the Blessed One that again he should be inactive, devoted to pleasant abiding here and now. It is we who shall be known for this crawling, brawling, wrangling and disputing. Now the story that is attached to this happening is not told in the Sutta. Um, it is told in the Vinaya. Now the um, Pali Canon consists of three baskets. T. Pitika. T is three and Pitika is basket. And one are the Sutta, the discourses, and the second basket is the Vinaya, the uh, rules and of the order for monks and nuns. And the third one is the Abhidhamma, the analytical explanation of mind states and um, causes and results. Now the Vinaya not, does not only contain the um, rules, but it also contains many, many stories. And one of these is this one here, which is mentioned in the introduction, which was not mentioned by the uh, translator himself because he's just translating the sutta, but by the editor, who was Prakantipalo. The story which happened was that these bhikkhus wouldn't listen to the Buddha. They kept on wrangling and disputing and brawling and crawling. And the Buddha said, that's enough. I'm not having, would not, not like to have any um, connection with this. So I'm leaving you and I'm going into the forest for the uh, rains retreat. And uh, where I shall be all by myself. And he did that. And the story goes that an elephant and a monkey served him every day with food. And we can often see, particularly in Sri Lanka, where this story is often retold, pictures of an elephant and a monkey offering a banana and a mango each to the Buddha, who is seated under a tree very often in this picture. Because there was no, he did not, the Buddha did not tell anyone where he was going. So there was no way that the lay people could bring their um, arms food to him. So the elephant and the monkey took care of him. Now, after a while, the um, lay people found out that the uh, Buddha had left Kosambi because of his crawling bhikkhus and they would no longer have any, um, arms food for those bhikkhus either and then the lay people, the story says that um, the lay people w found out where the Buddha was and begged him to come back so he did after the rains retreat he did come back and then the bhikkhus of Kusambi asked his pardon for his for their bad behavior now in the sutta itself this is not told but it is told in the uh, rules in the story of the, in the Vinaya. So even though that one bhikkhu tried to uh, sort of sort the thing out so that the Buddha wasn't going to get uh, involved in it, the Buddha still felt that the bhikkhus needed um, a little more of a lesson to be told to them, taught to them.
Now it being morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer rope, he went into Kosambi for arms. This is a very traditional sentence. It reoccurs in the suttas all the time. Takes his bowl and rope and goes for arms. When he had wandered for arms and had returned from his arms round after his meal, he set his resting place in order and taking his bowl and outer rope, he uttered these stances while standing. This is considered, even now, in those days certainly, uh, a sign of a very advanced person when they can uh, make up a poetry on the spur of the moment for the occasion which has arisen. And the Buddha was particularly apt in doing that and many, many times such verses were uttered by him. Now in English, of course, it's not a verse, but in Pali it would have been. And this is all about calling and disputing. When many voices shout at once, there's none thinks himself a fool. The Sangha being split, none thinks, I too took part, I helped in this. In other words, one doesn't look at oneself, one just sees all this misery going on and thinks that, you know, others are doing it. They have forgotten why speech, they talk with minds obsessed by words alone. Uncurb their mouth, they bawl at will. None knows what leads him so to do. This he abused me, he that beat me. He that worsted me, that robbed me. Hate never is allayed in men who cherish such like enmity. This he abused me, he that beat me. He that worsted me, that robbed me. Hate surely is allayed in men who cherish no such enmity. For enmity by enmity is never in this world allayed. It is allayed by amity. That is an ancient law. Friendliness, huh? Amity. So one can never get rid of enmity if one also gives out the same thing. One has to give out friendliness. Those others do not recognize that here we should restrain ourselves. Still there are some who are aware, and so their quarrels are appeased. Breakers of bones and murderers, stealers of cattle, horses and wealth, while bent on pillaging the realm, even these can act in concord. So why can you not do so too? The Buddha says, even murderers and, and robbers act together, and you, who are the monks in the Buddha's uh, sasana, in the Buddhist uh, dispensation, you can't even, you know, behave yourself together. If you can find a trustworthy companion with whom to walk, both virtuous and steadfast, then walk with him content and mindfully, and overcoming any threat of danger. If you can find no trustworthy companion with whom to walk, both virtuous and steadfast, then as a king who leaves the vanquished kingdom, Walk like a tusker in the woods alone. Tusker is one of those big elephants with huge tusks who very often uh, leave the herd, especially when they get older and go on alone. <coughs> Better it is to walk alone. There is no fellowship with fools. Walk alone, harm none, and know no conflict. Be like a tusker in the woods alone. Buddha often talks about this particular aspect of companionship. Now it's a natural wish 
of human beings to have companions. There most people do. There are some who don't want them, but the reasons are usually not um, purity, but very often fear. <laughs> so <laughs> I must have hit a button. <laughs> But most people do like to have companionship because it is also uh, a support system, naturally. And the Buddha often talked about this, that it is very good if one can find the right companion, somebody whom one can trust, who is virtuous and reliable. Now, that sounds like something quite obvious, but from all experiences, it's not easy not easy to find somebody who is virtuous, reliable, who is trustworthy, and with whom one can be content, and with whom one can be together. But if one can't find anybody like that, it's much better to be alone. One should not take second best. It is much better to be alone than to be together with fools. Even in other discourses, the Buddha talks about the word, the word fool. Now, that's a very often recurring word. In Pali, it's bala, B-A-L-A, and it also means child. So a fool is a childish person, the one who hasn't grown, who hasn't matured. In the uh, Mahamangala Sutta, it says, not with fools company keeping, with the wise always consorting. So it is important, according to the Buddha's instructions, with whom we are together. We should be choosy. It doesn't mean that we should have any kind of enmity for others. Certainly not, because then we are not any longer virtuous. But it, should, it means that we recognize the fact that we are easily influenced and that <clears throat> if we do have a togetherness with another person, with a companion, that that will be a, may, uh, have a great effect on our lives. So because he says that, he now leaves that whole mess in Kosambi and goes into the forest because those companions were neither trustworthy nor were they virtuous or steadfast. <laughs> and he goes into the woods alone. This is an, quite an interesting um, situation because um, although the, the, the Sutta does talk about that occasion, it doesn't mention that. One could imagine that this is not something that one would like um, many people to know that there was such a situation amongst monks. So the Vinaya, the rules, usually read only by monks and nuns. In other words, it stays in the family, all that bad behavior. <laughs> one doesn't like to tell others about it. And um, they are actually meant for monks and nuns. So now here we go on. Then having uttered these stanzas, standing, the Blessed One went to Balakalonakara Gama. Now the word Gama means village. So it's the village of Balakalonakara. 
I have no idea what that is. It could be a name of a person, I don't know. It's just the name of a village. The Venerable Bhagu was living there on that occasion. When he saw the Blessed One coming in the distance, he prepared his feet and water for the feet. This is also common in the East, even to this day, because one goes barefoot quite a lot, that one has very dirty feet, and that when one comes to some um, home or to some place where people are deferential, they like to wash one's feet. The Blessed One sat down on the seat prepared, and having done so, he washed his feet. Oh, he washed himself, very often the other person does it. The Venerable Bhagu paid homage and sat down at one side. When he had done so, the Blessed One said to him, I hope that you are keeping well, Bhikkhu, that you are comfortable and that you have no trouble on account of arms food. I see the Buddha is concerned that he has enough arms food and that he feels comfortable. The ascetic life was considered to be an extreme which did not produce the results that were necessary for enlightenment but also indulgences were luxury was another extreme however there are 13 dutanga practices which are ascetic practices which can be practiced by monks and nuns more often by monks at um, at some time but not as a uh, general rule now Bhagu says I'm keeping well, Blessed One, I'm comfortable and have no trouble on account of arms food. And then the Blessed One instructed, urged, roused and encouraged the Venerable Bhagu with talk on the, talk on the Dhamma, after which he got up from his seat and left for the Eastern Bamboo Park. Now the really important aspect of this whole sutta happens in that Eastern Bamboo Park. But the whole story is told where he came from and where he went and whom he met in order to again verify the occasion for this teaching because it was all told after the death of the Buddha so this is a verification whom he met, Bhagu and um, what happened in Kosambi and uh, the stanzas he said and all that these are verification systems but the real important aspect of this that happens now in the Eastern Bamboo Park. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandiya, and the Venerable Kimbila were living there. The park keeper saw the Blessed One coming. He told him, Do not come to this park, monk. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good. Do not disturb them. Now he doesn't recognize the Buddha, obviously, the park keeper and doesn't and wants to keep anybody out that's disturbing these three who are seeking their own good in other words they're meditating just another way of describing that they're meditating Anuruddha was the uh, brother of Ananda and he was blind and uh, he later all three became Arahant but at this time they're still practicing now the Venerable Anuruddha heard the parkkeeper speaking to the Blessed One and he told him, Friend parkkeeper, do not keep the Blessed One out. It's our own master, the Blessed One who has come. And the Venerable Anuruddha went to the Venerable Nandiya and the Venerable Kimbila and said, Come out, Venerable Sirs, come out, our master has come. So they obviously had some kutis there in this park. 
And uh, the uh, Anuruddha who had heard the parkkeeper and had seen the Buddha uh, told the other two to come out. Then all three went to meet the Blessed One. One took his bowl and outer robe. One prepared a seat and one placed water for washing the feet. The Blessed One sat down on the seat prepared and having done so he washed his feet. Then they paid homage to him and sat down at one side. When they had done so, the Blessed One said to them, I hope that you're all keeping well, Anuruddha, that you're comfortable and that you have no trouble on account of arms food. We're all keeping well, Blessed One, we're comfortable and have no trouble on account of arms food. I hope that you all live in concord and agreement, Anuruddha, as undisputing as milk with water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do so, Venerable Sir. It's a very um, well-known uh, simile uh, used here, metaphor used here, undisputing as milk with water. Milk and water mix well. All you have to do is stir it a bit before mix. <coughs> it's not like oil with water, that doesn't mix. But milk with water mixes. So this is a metaphor that's used that you live together um, completely in agreement. But Anuruddha, how do you live thus? So the Buddha doesn't just want to be told it's okay, we're fine. He wants to know how do they do that? How do they live together without any dispute? Particularly because these Kosambi uh, monks had just been disputing so much and uh, behaved so badly, so he's uh, probably a little more um, inclined to inquire. Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus, it is gained for me it is great gain for me here that I am living with such companions in the life divine. The life divine is the monk's life. I maintain bodily, verbal and mental acts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones both in public and in private. So in other words, he ne never forgets about loving kindness towards these other two companions. I think why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do and I act accordingly? We are different in body, venerable sir, but only one in mind, I think. Well, this is a um, um, way of living together which is of course ideal and uh, that's why it is important to have ideal companions because if you set aside your own wishes and your own um, ideas on what to do and do what others are, the others are doing, it better be the right thing they're doing. Otherwise one falls into bad things that one is letting other people do. So they are living, living together like one in mind. The Venerable Nandia and the Venerable Kimbila each spoke likewise. They added, this is how we live in comfort, Venerable Sir, as friendly and undisputing as milk with water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Good, good, Anuruddha, I hope you all dwell diligent, ardent and self-controlled. Now he's always talking to Anuruddha, which leads one to suppose that Anuruddha is the senior one of the three. So if you have three monks, and um, you need to talk to them. You address the one who's senior, which then goes for all of them. Uh, this, this is just a spare printing here. 
So now he wants to know whether they're all diligent, armed, and self-controlled. Surely we do so, Venerable Sir. But Anuruddha, how do you dwell thus? Venerable Sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with armed food, he tells them how they uh, help each other. This is another thing in this book which isn't so easy to see. It mightn't even be in this one. As to, Venerable Sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with armed food, prepares the seat, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over if he wishes. Otherwise, he throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuse bucket after washing it, and he sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of drinking water or washing water or water for the privy are low or empty, sees to them. If they're too heavy for him, he calls someone else by a sign of the hand, and they move it by joining hands. We do not speak for that purpose, but every five days we sit out the night together in talk on the Dhamma. This is how we dwell, diligent, ardent, and self-controlled. In other words, they, they share their um, duties as far as uh, food and um, cleaning up is concerned, and they don't have to tell each other it's always the one that is first there or the one that's last there that sees to it and they help each other without even having to say anything and so it also is interesting to read that um, because it gives us an idea how the life in the Buddhist time went on it uh, gives them sort of like a historical background Good, good, Anuruddha, but while dwelling diligent, ardent, and self-controlled in this way, have you attained, as a comfortable abiding, any distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision higher than the human Dhamma? Right. Now, what he's asking him is, a comfortable abiding is meditation, the jhanas. Um, Having attained a distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma, a distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision would be any one of the um, path and fruit moments, stream entry, once return or non-return or around. He's asking Anuruddha whether they have had a path moment, whether they have been able to penetrate into the... Um, self-delusion, which is worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma, transcending ordinary humanness. So now, of course, the answer is not any more correct. So, you see, the other sutta which I'm reading from, they have become enlightened, but this one which we're reading now, they haven't. So, as to that, Venerable Sir, as we dwell here, diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, we per perceive 
both illumination and the vision of form and that illumination of ours soon disappears and so does the vision of forms and we have not penetrated the sign the reason for that or for what or for that well what he's saying is that they are meditating and that they're having illumination and vision of forms now illumination right light vision of forms they see whatever it may be they may be seeing people they may be seeing clouds they may be seeing anything and uh, it soon disappears that illumination and the vision of forms also and we have they haven't understood what they're doing pro- properly yet still anuruddha the sign for that can be penetrated by you and now the buddha talks about the time before he was enlightened i too before my enlightenment while i was still an unenlightened bodhisattva perceived both illumination and the vision of forms but that illumination of mine and the vision of forms soon disappeared Bodhisattva means a person that is um, on the way to enlightenment, determined to have enlightenment, but not yet enlightened in this tradition. In the Mahayana tradition it's a little bit differently perceived, but and in this tradition only the Buddha is always called the Bodhisattva before his enlightenment. But in other traditions we often say that those who are striving for enlightenment can be considered bodhisattvas if they have possessed being on the path and not straying from it. So he also perceived illumination, bright light, and vision of forms, some forms, but it also soon disappeared. And I thought thus, what is the reason, what is the condition, why this illumination of mind and the vision of form disappears? I thought thus uncertainty arose in me and owing to the uncertainty my concentration died away when concentration died away the illumination disappeared and so did the vision of form i shall so act that uncertainty does not arise in me again so the first um hindrance for meditative success is uncertainty what am i doing am i doing it right am i doing it wrong is somebody else doing it better have I done it better yesterday am I doing it should I be doing it differently is that what I'm uh, experiencing right the uncertainty which makes the concentration die away because uncertainty when it arises takes over the mind and so concentration can't be in the mind so instead of being with the um a rising condition he was he says he became uncertain and as i dwelt diligent art and self-controlled i perceived both illumination and vision of forms but that illumination of mine and the vision of forms disappeared and i thought that what is the reason what's the condition why they disappear and i thought inattention arose in me and owing to the inattention my concentration died away when concentration died away the illumination disappeared so did the vision of forms i shall so act that neither uncertainty arises in me again nor inattention now illumination is always a sign of concentration a bright light it's not in itself um, a meditation subject nor is it any um, any of the meditative options but it certainly 
denotes concentration and can be used if it is difficult to get into the uh, absorptions, it can be used as um, a support system. Now, as he was um, becoming inattentive, of course the whole thing disappeared, and this illumination which had arisen, which was part of his concentration, disappeared also with that vision of forms. The vision of forms is not um, explained in any uh, detail, but um, and it is not any of the meditative absorptions, because later on he talks about the meditative absorptions. It is um, obviously just something that can that he saw, because I mean people do have visions when they meditate, and uh, but the whole thing disappeared quickly, and. The next reason why these things disappeared was lethargy and drowsiness. Now when the mind becomes lethargic and drowsy, obviously the concentration dies away. And what he is actually talking about are states of meditation which can lead one to the absorption. Certainly the illumination can. And if the concentration were to stay with any vision or form and not veer away from it, it would be possible to become concentrated enough. But obviously he had, the first thing was uncertainty, second thing was inattention, third one is lethargy and drowsiness. And he made an, <coughs> he made an, um, an determination not to have let that happen again. But you can also see here that what he's talking about is that he had thoughts of a certain kind. I thought thus. So our insights arise from our thinking process. It's very often misunderstood because when we want to have the calm meditation that we shouldn't think, obviously we shouldn't, and that thinking is dukkha, quite obviously so. But if we want to have insights, the thinking process has to happen. So now he has made determination that all these three things shouldn't happen. So again, why, why then they had disappeared, still disappeared, and what arose in him was alarm. Owing to the alarm, my concentration died away. Now suppose, Anuruddha, a man set out on a journey, and murderers leapt out on each side of him, then alarm would arise in him on that account. So too, I thought thus, alarm arose in me, and owing to the alarm, my concentration died away. When concentration died away, the illumination disappeared, and so did the vision of forms. I shall so act that neither uncertainty, nor inattention, nor lethargy, and drowsiness, nor alarm arise in me again. Alarm, other word for fear. When one is on the way to concentration, then it is possible that fear arises because the ego does have to give in quite markedly to become totally concentrated and fear can arise out of that reason and the fear which is called alarm here of course stops the meditation completely fear which the ego sets up as a system of um, self-support so that it isn't overrun 
by the concentration. Now the next reason why his concentration disappeared was elation. Obviously he was very elated with having such nice illumination and interesting forms to look at and he got elated and that made the whole thing disappear. In other words, the reaction. First we had uh, inattention and, and drowsiness, but then we have two kinds of reactions. One is the fearful reaction and one is the elated reaction. Look how nice I can meditate. Well, obviously that makes it disappear too if one sees how nice one can meditate. So he was elated and it disappeared. Suppose Anuruddha, a man seeking a hidden treasure, found at once five hidden treasures, then elation would arise in him on that account. So too I thought thus, elation arose in me and owing to the elation my concentration died away. When concentration died away, the illumination disappeared and so did the vision of form. I shall so act that neither uncertainty nor inattention, nor lethargy and drowsiness, nor alarm, nor elation arise in me again. By the way, that some of this repetitive um, verbiage in the suttas also comes about through the uh, oral repetition that the monks did in order not to forget the suttas. These were written down much, much later. And because these things had to be remembered in order to be practiced, there was a lot of repetition used. It's not clear whether the Buddha was always so repetitive, which is quite possible, because when one teaches people, one does try to repeat the things one thinks they don't know, um, or whether it is also part of the monk's repetition, that, uh, in this case Ananda, who is repeating the whole thing. Because now he's repeating all the, um, all the hindrances to meditation, and he's repeating them every time. Now the next reason that he found was inertia. Inertia one could probably put down as a lack of determination. And when inertia arose, then of course concentration died away, the illumination disappeared and the vision of forms. And he made another determination. Now again, the next one, too much energy. Well, inertia was, of course, too little energy. And now he finds that there's too much energy. And too much energy produces restlessness. And, of course, that brings the concentration to a halt. And when there's not enough energy, of course, the mind just can't keep at the, on the meditation subject. When the, um, suppose, Anuruddha, a man gripped the quail tightly with both hands. It would die then and there. So too I thought thus. Too active an energy arose in me, and owing to too active an energy, my concentration died away. When concentration died away, the illumination disappeared and so did the vision of forms. I shall so ask that neither uncertainty nor inattention, nor lethargy and drowsiness, nor alarm nor elation, nor inertia, nor too active an energy arise in me again. Now, energy has as its um, companion for successful meditation, of course, concentration. So, when the two are in, not in balance, the meditation does not happen. 
energy is in the mind and it is concerned with um, usually with um, this um, distractions of thinking with the discursive thinking there's too much energy in the mind the outlet is discursive thinking Of course, if there's no in, in, uh, when there's inertia, when there's no, not enough energy in the mind, of course the outlet is sleep. So it either falls asleep or it starts discursive thinking. It is a usual way, isn't it? And the, the uh, metaphor uses gripping a quail too tightly with both hands that it dies with too much energy and the whole concentration dies, doesn't it? Now then he looks for the next reason when he had uh, difficulty again and again it says too sluggish an energy arose in me owing to too sluggish an energy the concentration died away suppose a man gripped a quail loosely it would jump out of his hand so too I thought that too sluggish an energy arose in me and owing to too sluggish an energy my concentration died away and then the same paragraph again so inertia probably more like um, no interest and now too sluggish in energy and the next one is longing arose in me and owing to longing my concentration died away well longing wishing for something huh? yeah craving wanting something wanting breakfast or wanting to take a trip or wanting to have something that one doesn't have in other words the mind is not steady hmm? and then he looks for the next reason why it again happened perception of difference arose in me owing to perception of difference my concentration died away when concentration died away the illumination disappeared and so did the vision of forms I shall so act that neither certainty, uncertainty, sorry, nor inattention, nor lethargy and darkness, and so on. The perception of difference which arose in him was this, the naming of the form. In other, in, instead of keeping the attention on whatever it was that had arisen, he was starting to perceive them and give them names, where of course, at that moment no concentration is possible that would lead to any of the absorptions because then there's the trying to see what this is and what that is and the whole thing falls apart now the next reason which he found which made the meditation um, unsuccessful was too much meditating upon forms arose in me so when he was looking at these forms in this which he had a vision of and he was with his perception giving them different names and different aspects of this form he was putting too much emphasis on the form rather than on the concentration now the same could be um, said about the breath it doesn't have to be a vision of a form but it could be said about the breath if one for instance 
put one's attention on the type of breath that is happening or not happening. Um, it would take away the concentration. The main aspect of getting absorbed is to be totally concentrated on that, whatever it is that one's putting one's mind on or not trying to analyze it. To analyze perception of difference is insight. He's trying to become calm. So perception of difference of vision of forms is useless because these forms are not real, they're visions. So there's no nothing to analyze. But even the breath, if we want to become concentrated, there's nothing to analyze about the breath. So the, um, uh, the differences are this, this is an analytical aspect. And also too much meditating um, upon forms putting too much emphasis on that so now he is um, repeating when I knew thus that uncertainty is an imperfection of mind I abandoned it knowing that inattention lethargy and drowsiness alarm elation inertia too active energy too sluggish an energy longing perception of difference too much meditating upon forms is an imperfection of mind. I abandoned it. While I dwelt diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, I perceived illumination, and I did not see forms. I saw forms, and I did not perceive illumination, even for a whole night and a whole day and a whole night and a day. I thought thus, what is the reason, what is the condition for this? I thought thus, on the occasion on which I give attention to the sign of illumination without giving attention to the sign of form, on that occasion I perceive illumination and I do not see forms. And on that occasion on which I give attention to the sign of forms without giving attention to the sign of illumination, on that occasion I see forms and I do not perceive illumination, even for a whole night, a whole day, and a whole night and day. Now, what he's saying here is that he now came to understand that he shouldn't look upon two things in the meditation, that he should not divide his attention. Either stay with the illuminated sign, which is, you know, a bright light, or stay with a form which may have arisen. But don't do both, because that's dividing the concentration. And... The words diligent, well, ardent and self-controlled. Self-control is to let go of all outer conditions. Just stay with what one is doing. That uh, traditional way of expressing what, uh, for the, uh, expressing the meditative endeavor. Diligent, ardent and self-controlled. Ardent also means that one is fully embracing it, not half-heartedly. If one is ardently loving, one isn't half-heartedly loving. The word ardent means fully, hmm? fully embracing. And now he speaks about seeing limited illumination and limited forms, and then measureless illumination and measureless forms. Now limited illumination, of course, is the size. We could see a speck, huh? We could see a speck of bright light, but we could also see measureless bright light. Well, obviously, measureless bright light means measureless concentration. Same with forms. 
What is the reason, what's the condition? I thought thus, on the occasion on which my concentration is limited, on that occasion my inner eye is limited, and with a limited eye I perceive limited illumination, and I see limited forms. And on the occasion on which my concentration is measureless, on that occasion my eye is measureless, and with measureless eye I see measureless forms. And for a whole night and a whole day and a whole night and a day, one would assume from this that he didn't go to sleep, that he would be sitting in meditation two nights and two days. And that could probably, would probably be correct. As soon as by my knowing thus, that uncertainty is an imperfection of mind, it had been abandoned in me. Now, here we see a very interesting phenomena that he says that as soon as he knew that this was an imperfection, he abandoned it. I'm afraid that we wouldn't be able to say that. We know a lot of imperfections, but we can't abandon them immediately. There's a great difference between a mind that has practiced for many lifetimes and a mind that has only practiced a few lifetimes or none at all. The strength of mind isn't there to follow through on what one knows. There are very few people in the world that don't know what's good. And there are equally few people who are actually doing it. So it's very difficult to, for an ordinary person to know the imperfection and abandon it immediately. As soon as, by my knowing thus, that inattention, lethargy and drowsiness, alarm, elation, inertia, too active energy, too sluggish in energy, longing, perception of difference, as soon as by my knowing thus that too much meditating on forms is an imperfection of mind, it had been abandoned in me. As soon as he saw that there was anything wrong with this meditation, he left that behind. He left all of those things behind, such as not paying attention, then getting fearful, getting delighted, too much energy, not enough, greed or craving, looking at these things that happen, that he could see and perceiving them, then that the forms, looking at the forms and trying to see them, that all of that was were better abandoned. And thereupon I thought thus, I have abandoned those imperfections in my mind. Now I shall develop concentration in three ways. I develop concentration with initial application and sustained application. I developed it without, without initial application, with only sustained application. I developed it without initial and without sustained application. I developed it with happiness. I developed it without happiness. I developed it accompanied by enjoyment. I developed it accompanied by equanimity. What he's describing here are the four jhanas, which are sometimes divided into five. And when they're divided into five, the first two are made into two separate ones, where the initial application and the sustained application are divided into two parts. In the Abhidhamma, they're always into five. In the suttas, they're mostly into four. However, in this case, it appears to be as if it was into five first jhanas. But since that only complicates the matter more, one doesn't really have to do that sort of thing, I stick always to the division of four. 
because the, our minds are complicated enough. I have enough uh, differences in it, perception of difference. So the less perception of difference, the better. Now perception of difference is an important aspect which we should realize how it stops us from being concentrated. How this particular aspect of our mind which is constantly um, trying to um, pinpoint what we know, what we see, what we hear, what we like, what we don't like, how that stops us from concentration. Now the, the first two aspects, initial and sustained application, are not nothing else except getting started and then being concentrated. And when it becomes developed, there's no further initial application and certainly no sustained application because the, um, the states which arise are then the meditation subjects. Happiness, which in this case would be piti, then letting the piti go and going to the joy and then going to equanimity. The, um, actually there are, yes, he does put it into five, but it's not, it does not, um, um, particularly, yes, developing it without happiness, um, would denote then that there was another step in between. In other words, this is a different way of describing the four jhanas than what we're used to, but it certainly um, has that as its um, meaning. And as soon as I develop concentration thus, knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unassailable. This is the last birth. There is no renewal of being now. This is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Anuruddha was satisfied and he delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now, this appears to say that with the four jhanas, he knew that with that concentration that he was enlightened. But that's not so, because in the middle of that it says knowledge and vision. And that means knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Yata Bhutanyana Dasana which is a step of insight. From that step of insight arises the uh, disenchantment, the dispassion, and the liberation. Now this is shortened here completely in this particular sutta because the long part of the sutta is about the imperfections and not about the perfections. The perfections which arise are in other suttas. This one tells about all the difficulties of the meditation and I thought it was worthwhile um, knowing about that because some of those difficulties, of course, arise also in our meditations. And to realize that the Buddha had the same ones before he became the Buddha might be quite reassuring. That it is a human difficulty, although maybe one doesn't find it reassuring, maybe it's just another matter of, uh, of um, um, discontent. It still appears to me that one should feel quite at, um, at ease about the fact that an unenlightened person has difficulty with meditation. 
The, um, the last paragraph should under no circumstances be construed to mean that the um, meditative absorptions bring uh, the enlightenment, the deliverance is enlightenment. Huh? It is that knowledge and vision of things as they really are which precedes this enchantment, dispassion and liberation. So it is only very much shortened here in this. So one has to read that sort of into the sentence. All right, we actually managed to do a whole sutta in one evening. Quite amazing. Any, any questions on that? Could you just say that again? Knowledge and vision? Of things as they really are. It brings disenchantment and... Dispassion, liberation. But that's also putting it very short, in very short context. But it's important to mention that here because otherwise one could get the idea that the four jhanas actually denote deliverance and deliverance means Nibbana liberation, no? It doesn't. Well, that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, here he only realized that this is what's, what is happening to him. When he was actually under the boat tree in that particular situation, um, it, one would assume that he did all eight. But they are very often only mentioned four, as I said before, because the other, the Arupas, the other four, are supposed to be an extension of the fourth one. So very often he speaks about the four, but other times he also speaks about the other. And because the wording is not always identical, it's not always totally, very often not clear um, when one hasn't actually practiced that, what he's talking about, because the wording is not always the same. But uh, many times he speaks only about four. And would that be a description of... Um part of his enlightenment? This? That, yes. You know, the fact that he saw all these these hindrances and all those and he dropped them one after the other. The past two, yes. The past two enlightenment. And he's trying to tell these three monks, who are obviously not enlightened yet, what they should do. He's telling them, this is what I experienced. I had all these hindrances. Now you better check your own and see whether you can drop all these and when I was able to drop them, he says, then I was able to go into the uh, absorption. And as I went into the absorption, then I could see things as they really are. So he's um, showing them the way. And in this other sutta, the same chaps are enlightened. Number 31. They are, they are actually telling of their enlightenment. Um, I 
quite interesting. And as the whole story is exactly the same in this other sutta. Um, but then, when it comes to when, when the Buddha asks Anuruddha, um, have you attained a comfortable abiding, any distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma? And then in this other sutta, he says, why not, Venerable Sir? Here, whenever we want, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unprofitable dhammas, we enter upon and abide in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. Now, the word seclusion is not supposed to understood to mean that they're away from other people, which they are, these people, these monks happen to be. It's seclusion from sensual desires. There's no sensual desire. You can't have sensual desire in the journey. You can't have both. So, um, Venerable Sir, this is a distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma, which we have attained as a comfortable abiding while dwelling diligent, ardent, and self-controlled. Good, good, Anuruddha, but is there any other distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma, which you have attained as a comfortable abiding by surmounting that abiding, by tranquilizing that abiding. Why not, Venerable Sir? Here, whenever we want, with the stilling of initial application, we go into the second jhana. And then he asks him about that again, and he says, third jhana. And then he asks him again, he says, yes, fourth jhana. Um, with the fading away of happiness, the third jhana. With the abandoning of bodily pleasure and pain, the fourth jhana. Uh, then they go, they, the whole thing is not actually printed, why have to look for another sutta again? <laughs> this is a very poor way of, of um, having this book uh, done. Um, and then they go on to say about the base consisting of infinite space, consciousness, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. Um, good, good, Anuruddha, but is there any other distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision higher than the human Dhamma, which you have attained as a comfortable abiding by surmounting that abiding, by tranquilizing that abiding. Why, ne- why not, Venerable Sir? Here, whenever we want, by completely surmounting the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, we enter upon and abide in the cessation of perception and feeling, and our taints are exhausted by our seeing with understanding. Venerable Sir, that is a distinction worthy of a noble one's knowledge and vision, higher than the human Dhamma, which we have attained as a comfortable abiding by surmounting that former abiding, by tranquilizing that former abiding. Now what he's saying is sometimes called the ninth jhana or niroda, uh, more often called niroda, the cessation of perception and feeling, which is past the eighth jhana. And it is niroda, and it means, which means cessation. And it is only open to non-returners and arahants, and it is only... Um, it does not necessarily have to be a, an attainment of non-returners and arahants because it is based upon the mastery of the eight jhanas. But here these monks saying they are having them. But the Buddha is still not uh, um, contented. He says, good, good, Anuruddha, there is no comfortable abiding higher or more sublime than that. 
And then when the Blessed One had instructed, urged, roused and encouraged the Venerable Anuruddha, then Venerable Nandiya and the Venerable Kimbala with a talk on the, with a talk on the Dhamma, he rose from his seat and departed. And now when they had accompanied the Blessed One a little on his way and turned back again, the Venerable Nandiya asked the Venerable Anuruddha and the Venerable Kimbala, have we ever announced to the Venerable Anuruddha our obtaining such and such abidings and attainments that he proclaims them in the Blessed One's presence up to the exhaustion of taints? The Venerable Ones have never announced to me their obtaining of such and such abidings and attainments, yet by encompassing the Venerable One's minds with my mind, it is known to me that they have obtained such and such abidings and attainments. Besides, deities have told me this fact, saying, these venerable ones have obtained such and such abidings entertainments. Then I declared it when directly questioned by the blessed one. So the um, the exhaustion of taints is me is uh, is arahantship. The exhaustion of all our taints is complete uh, total um, liberation. So he's proclaiming that, and these other two are saying to him, "Why can they say such a thing? We never told you." And he says, "Yes, but I have seen that with my mind, in your mind, that you have exhausted your taints." and also the devas have chosen. So they have to accept that. And then the devas, um, they um, have confirmed it. And there at the end it says, uh, uh, this, uh, who is this bigger from? from Ayas, uh, an earth god, is called Diga. Um, and, um, and the Buddha says, See Diga, how far these three clansmen are practicing the way of welfare and happiness of the many, out of pity for the world, for the benefit, welfare and happiness of gods and men. So the actual meditative attainments are already for the welfare and happiness of the world. And um, they are without doing anything further and they were all delighted. So the, um, the pathway which is shown here is a pathway through the jhanas to the um, nirodha, to cessation and the exhaustion of taints. But again, in that uh, sutta which I've read very quickly, because it just sort of goes along with this one as the next one, um, it again says, a noble one's knowledge and vision. And the knowledge and vision is always the inside part. So it's not just the jhanas. It's always that knowledge and vision has to be within it, which is the inside part. But going through these um, pathway of the jhanas, they, these um, monks came to complete uh, cessation of all taints or exhaustion of all taints. So here they are. Here they are shown in the first sutta. The difficulties and now we've been able to do it in this sutta here. I wish it went quite this fast as from reading from one to the next. Huh? Nice. Okay, any any questions on any of this or everything perfectly clear? <laughs> all we have to do is let go of all these difficulties, huh? The difference between a, a 
attention and concentration. Uh, something in my mind that might be with concentration is this unconditional anger. Is to feel that concentration is an exclusion of things that are brought to make energy. Like depression, if you concentrate on, on one thing, it's It is. It ex- excludes, excludes all else. Yeah, but so does attention, doesn't it? I mean, like attention seems to be without wastage of energy. How? Concentrate. Because in full attention, it, it seems that there's no nothing is excluded, and yet the, the point still remains, which one is tending to. Concentration seems to be a deliberate exclusion, which seems to be the one piece of energy in itself. Well, deliberate exclusion is part of concentration, but why that should be a wastage of energy is beyond me. Well, if there's something that I'm aware of, of a distraction in meditation, and I deliberately uh, don't attend to it, there seems to be a conflict. But when I, when I find that it's just pure attention, whatever it is that I was trying not to give attention to is there, but it's okay. There's no like, friction between... Your mind has made the convolution out of a very simple matter. The minute there is a distraction, and you know that there is a distraction, you have already paid attention to it. If you didn't pay attention to it, you wouldn't even know there was a distraction. So as long as you stay in one point, you don't have distractions. And as soon as you have a distraction, you've gone away from that point. Simplify. Simplification is also concentration. Makes life easier. Well, the way I looked at it was that these 11 are sort of elaborations because you have this longing with this sensual desire, obviously. You have the uh, sloth and torpor, which is called uh, inertia and sluggish energy. You have restlessness and worry, which is called too much energy uncertainty, which is obviously skeptical doubt, and um, the, um, what was the other ones? You have uh, the East, I think they are um, in more detail, you know, they're just more detailed, because um, they certainly ring a bell, don't they? They are familiar. But with that more detail, it's also helpful Uh, it helps us to see that a little more because of um, I mean they can arise just like that you know as they are mentioned here so um, sorry yes well I don't um, um, ah yes this alarm thing that's right Uh, the alarm that would be part of the ill will of course 
you know, that fear and uh, then the elation again, well, you would have to, you know, that's a, sort of the opposite of that, so it's a more an elaboration, or certainly not ill will, but it's more in the, in the um, sensual desire realm, you know. Um, well, <laughs> all the Buddha says is the minute I saw it, I left, I dropped it, you know. I mean, he doesn't give any other instructions how to drop it, he just dropped it, <laughs> which is nice. And then he said, I've abandoned these imperfections, so I shall now develop concentration in three ways. Mm. And he says in three ways, which is interesting because I can see five here, initial application and sustained application, then without initial application, well, that's the first one, then without initial application, with only sustained application, then without initial and without sustained, then with happiness, then without happiness, then with enjoyment and then with equanimity. So there are many, well, it's just said in three ways. So maybe he just puts happiness and enjoyment and equanimity all into one basket. Mm. But there's no particular uh, instruction on how to uh, get rid of them just other than realizing that these are imperfections. In other words, one needs a fair bit of willpower. I mean, if this doesn't work, I've got to get rid of it. So it's a willpower, determination. Now, determination is a very important aspect um, of all one's endeavors. Now, in meditation, uh, determination works like this. One has a determination, aditana in Pali, and then, as one meditates, one drops it. It's not possible to hang on to I am going to be concentrated because you never will be. But before we start, we can make that determination. In fact, we can wake up in the morning and make that determination saying, I'm really going to do it today. I'm not going to let anything stand in my way except getting concentrated or g- and gaining insight. And these determinations do have to be repeated as many times as necessary. But of course, while one is meditating, it's no use thinking of it. It's always before. It's like a New Year resolution. You can make a New Day resolution, new meditation resolution, from case to case. So this is a part of dropping an imperfection. Having seen that imperfection in oneself, or just as one sees others' imperfections in oneself, one makes this determination, I'm going to get rid of this. And this is one, the first aspect is the seeing of them, to recognizing them. And here he recognizes all these in great detail. They're recognized in great detail, and as he recognizes them, he's able to drop them because of strength of mind. Obviously, our mind doesn't have that strength, but we can at least try. When um, you were talking about illumination, mm-hmm. and that's one of the signs. I don't, I don't really know that exactly, but um, if it a bright light, like like sunlight. Like spotlight, searchlight. 
and that is a sign of concentration. Not everybody gets it. Is it a, a, maybe you've experienced it or whatever? Is it something that where you don't see anything but that? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it can be very small, but it can be very large. about the jhanas and when certain feelings arise and it could be according to which one it is. You said that you're supposed to switch the focus or the um, use it as a meditation object then. Is it like that those like the happiness and the peacefulness and equanimity, are they like little stepping stones to each other? That you kind of switch to this meditation object then? That's because that's what the feeling I get from what you just, from when you said that. Well, it, there are, it depends. You can deliberately switch, or you can slowly the the mind may slowly uh, veer from one to the next. You may have a feeling that the mind falls into. There are many different ways of of uh, you know doing this. That can be deliberate. Hmm? Depending on the person? Or? Yes, depending on the person, depending on the concentration at that particular time. If the concentration is really strong, it just one follows the other very smoothly. If the concentration isn't that strong, there may have to be deliberate uh, mind uh, moment, uh, del- deliberation to do it. But the main thing is to do it. And uh, particularly uh, to look at these, uh, is it 11? These? You've counted them, okay. <laughs> 11 imperfections and see which ones apply. Now, not necessarily all 11 apply to oneself. Uh, that's not necessary. We don't have to have all 11 imperfections. I mean, <laughs> can you, <laughs> certainly enough if we have two or three or five or six or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they are very detailed, you know. So we look and see which ones of these have I got, which ones are arising. And as they arise, um, to have this determination, I'm going to drop that. This is not uh, useful. So when he talks about initial and sustained application, he's talking about putting the attention on the breath and keeping it there. Yes, if it if it is an an, um, a, an, a, an obstacle, yes, certainly, yes, because the 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 name makes it more known, more familiar, easier to get rid of. Yes, it is helpful. Inattention, yes, yes. Well, that's the old labeling, isn't it? Which I've been pounding on for years with varying success. Mind content. Very much mind content could be called mind state, but usually this is more mind content. Mind states more mood-like, mood things. Mind content, yes, labeling. They're very helpful, certainly. And actually, really, to get out of these 11, which ones are the ones that are uh, bothering me particularly and uh, finding the one that's or 
two or three or whichever it may be and uh, making a determination next time I notice that one that's going to be dropped and instead initial and sustained application which means on the breast staying on the breast and then getting to the states which are we have mentioned okay all clear huh Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let your heart surrender to love and devotion. Love and devotion for the great teacher and the great teaching. much of it as you have realized in your own heart. Let this love and devotion fill you and surround you and drench you. Lose yourself in it. being left only with love and devotion. Transmit that feeling of love and devotion to everyone here. Filling everyone's heart. each one to surrender.
think of people near and dear to you. Transmit the feelings of love and devotion to their hearts, letting them also feel like that, surrendering to those feelings, losing themselves. Your transmission can help them to do that. Now think of friends and relations. Filling their hearts with love and devotion, helping them to surrender to those feelings. Think of people you know anywhere, near or far, that you've seen or spoken to. Fill their hearts with love and devotion, letting them experience. as fully as possible. your feelings of love and devotion and surrender grow and expand and reach out to as many people as possible letting them take part 
and those feelings. to enjoy their connection with those feelings. Let your heart expand, come unlimited. Filling people near and far, going further and further so there's no barrier to love and devotion. attention back on yourself. Feel yourself completely drenched and surrounded by your surrender to love and devotion. people everywhere. 